Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 212 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Paulette Stout all about how to write controversy. I don't know if you guys remember, but there was a song, 212, uh, it was around whilst I was at university and I really had to try hard not to say episode 212 uh, because that's, it was one of the songs Chloe and I used to uh, scream at each other. <laughs> whilst a little inebriated. Anyway, moving swiftly onwards. Last week's question was, tell me about a skill or party trick you have that would surprise people. So Ian Worrell said, ho, 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 uh, perhaps knocking on my head to make a hollow sound. I'm sure that's not true. Anyway, this week's question is, what one book do you want to read before the year is out? The book recommendation this week is patron J.P. Reinflesh the Ninth's book, and this book is Story Hypothesis, The Missing Piece of Your Fiction Puzzle. So I haven't read this yet, but I will be reading it because J.P. is going to come on the show to talk all about story hypothesis. So here is uh, the blurb. Does the concept of theme feel like a phantom in your writing process, vaguely present yet elusive and challenging to grasp? Are you an author who has tasted the thrill of finishing that first book or two, but now you're yearning to take your storytelling skills to the next level. Then Story Hypothesis, the missing piece of your fiction puzzle, is the breakthrough guide you've been waiting for. This innovative approach leverages nine fundamental human needs uh, identified by Manfred Max Neef, providing a clear, easy-to-use statement that serves as a foundation for your story and scenes. With this tool, you'll be able to develop compelling, compelling narratives with resonating themes. Stand out from the crowd and make your stories resonate. Let story hypothesis be the catalyst for your success. Your next level in writing mastery is just a page away. Are you ready to dive in? So you, I will leave a link in that to the show notes and look forward to interviewing JP all about that very soon. So in personal news and updates then, as I record this, it is Wednesday the 11th of October and therefore it's about a month until Vegas. So I thought I would let everybody know that I will be doing a Rebel meetup on the Monday uh, evening. So probably 7.30ish on the Monday, 7.30ish p.m. Uh, Monday and I will uh, identify a location (laughs) very soon but if you're interested in doing a rebel uh, meetup and coming to see me then uh, please just drop me an email and I will make sure I pop you on a communications list so that you get all the info about where we're going to meet Um, and yeah I would love to see you in Vegas and speaking of Vegas I have now (laughs) started work on my talk finally Um, I have Try, been trying to deal with the imposter uh, syndrome monsters and all of the rest of it and uh, the way that I <laughs> managed to get over it is to buy myself a treat and then refuse to let myself have this treat until I have finished the presentation so uh, the treat arrived yesterday and all of a sudden <laughs> I was very motivated to get it done uh, and tell the imposter syndrome monsters to fuck off. So uh, that is where I'm at. I am probably about halfway through, I think. And um, yeah, feeling more confident. Isn't it funny? Every time you just start doing something, you feel better. Action is always the answer, literally always the answer. It drives me nuts, but it's very, very true. So uh, I'm hoping to finish the first draft of that today and or tomorrow, probably tomorrow now, I think. Um, and in terms of other news, so I 
I have decided to write the next book. I have courses that I have been working on and I am going to continue to work on them. But at the moment, the fiction is giving me so much joy that I just want to keep following the joy. So uh, I am going to be working on the next fiction book um, and then working on the courses in the in-between moments. So that is the thing that I was not sure if I was going to say last week, but it is where I am at now. So, and I have definitely 100% made that decision. So I am working on my vampire romance at the moment, and I am also working on actually three different courses in the background, but I can't commit to a release date because I don't know when I'm going to release them. And it feels hard saying that because I want to release them, but I also want to continue following Joy. So here we are. That's just me being honest. That's where I'm at. I'm going to continue uh, prioritizing the fiction for now. And yeah, <laughs> it is what it is. The thing is as well, I'm learning so much from doing this and so much marketing. I'm learning so much about marketing, so much about business that I do feel like there are more nonfiction things that I want to do. But like, you know, you have to get to the point where you're at the tipping point, right? You have enough, you know what the hook is, you know what it is that you want to say. And I don't right now. And I think it's because I'm still collecting information. I'm still collecting experience. I I don't, I don't have enough. I haven't hit the, um, what is that word? It's like the, oh, someone's going to be screaming at the podcast trying to give me the word, but I just can't think of it. It's like the, 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 <laughs> I can't even give an analogy. I'm like, if only you could see me gesturing wildly into the air trying to explain what I'm trying to say. But anyway, so so yeah, this is where I'm at. I'm, I'm currently working on uh, outlining the vampire romance. I'm hoping to start this week. If I don't start this week, I will start next week. And in the meantime, um, I have uh, been building uh, the course structure for um, Know Your Market. And... I think what will probably end up happening is that I end up filming towards the end of the year. So it's not going to be out before November, which is what I really wanted to happen. But it is what it is, you know, like I just I am refusing to not do the things that bring me the greatest joy. And that is where we are at. OK, I think that's it for my personal update. So I'm just going to move straight on. All of the week this week is Beatrice Bradshaw. Beatrice says... It all started with my divorce in 2008 when I was 31. Although amicable, it wasn't easy. I wasn't in love anymore, but I really liked the guy. We had got used to each other and built a life together after nearly 10 years. But as soon as he moved out, he moved on and instantly made a baby with his colleague. Oh. After I got settled in my new place and had just started to live my own life, doing all the things I didn't get to do in my 20s, like lots of shots, I got diagnosed with cervical cancer in 2011. Oh, fuck. Well, that sucked. Roughly one year of several surgeries and treatments later, including chemo and radiotherapy, I and almost losing my lower legs because of a complication called compartment syndrome. Holy fuck. I went on a world trip. Six for six months and danced my ass off in South America. Yay! 
in uh, Carnival in Rio. Highly recommended. Everybody glitters. But upon my return, my grandparents got increasingly sick and frail. I had mostly grown up with them, so we were very close. My grandpa was diagnosed with Parkinson's. Uh, my gran had cardiovascular disease and a weak heart after a heart attack years before. I took care of them as best I could uh, because I loved those two wee people more than anything in the world. It was an honour, but it was also excruciatingly draining. And yet I would do it again in a heartbeat. They both passed, oh no, were away within seven months of each other in 2016 and 17. Oh, after being married for 61 years, I felt very lost and alone in the world. Overall, I lost seven friends and relatives within six years. Jesus. And then... My 18-year-old cat, Gizmo, who had diabetes for quite a while, died too. You wouldn't do that to any character in a book. Honestly, after all that, I was unspeakably exhausted and something cracked. I literally thought, fuck it. On a whim, I decided to follow my heart, to sell all my stuff, to leave everything behind, my friends, my job, my flat, and move from Berlin to Scotland. It didn't make any sense, but it was the best decision ever. The people are amazing, so warm and welcoming. I now live in the vibrant city of Glasgow and I'm about to finish university. I'm 46, by the way, and alongside my undergraduate history dissertation, I'm writing my very first, first romance novel under my pen name, Beatrice Bradshaw ah I love that I'm still alive and I'm thriving how's that for rebellious oh my goodness me I absolutely love this story what a heartbreaking story um but what a triumph at the end like I love that you have continued to fight and you 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 are changing your life and making your life exactly what you want and full of joy I think this was incredible and super uplifting so thank you so much for sharing that story you would like to be a rebel of the week please do send in your story it can be any kind of rebellion something big something small or something in between please do send in the stories you know they're my favorite part of the week uh, and we are always running low like literally always so please do send them in you can send your story to Becca over on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. No new patrons today, but a huge thank you to all of my existing patrons. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus content like tonight, where we're having a movie night on Zoom, then you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Okay, that's it from me this week. Let's get on with the episode. Hello and welcome to the Rebel author podcast. Today, I'm joined by Paulette Stout. Paulette is the fearless author of fast-paced contemporary women's fiction, tackling social issues often ignored. With Paulette's books, readers get bingeable prose, relatable characters, and compelling stories that keep pages turning. Her 10 book award recognitions span both of her titles, Love Only Better and What We Never Say, adding to her three media industry awards, including a Media Week All-Star. You can usually find Paulette rearranging words into pleasing patterns while wearing grammar t-shirts at her home in Acton, Massachusetts. Hello and welcome. Hello. <laughs> I'm super excited to be with you. Oh, shucks. I'm happy for you to be here too. Would you like to tell everyone before we dive into the content, um, like about you and your journey? Like, how did you get to where you are today? So I was, I think the first time someone told me they thought I was a good writer, it was a boss I had. And I was super surprised because at the time, you know, I worked in advertising, I worked in marketing still. And at the time I was writing these really boring quarterly reports and I was getting bored writing them. 
So I just really dove into the language and tried to make them sound compelling every quarter, even though they were basically saying the same thing over and over. And he, him saying that just kind of triggered, hmm, you know, maybe I could do that, you know? So at the time I was writing, reading a lot of mysteries. So I tried a mystery book. And of course my office mate said it should be in the occult. So that's what it was. And <laughs> it was, it was kind of garbagey. So that went into a drawer and I started again. And for 17 years, I wrote the book of my heart. And I think I was afraid. I think I was afraid to take it forward. It was about my own intimate life and the struggles I was having at the time, finishing in the bedroom, as it were. And it wasn't until I got laid off in 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I was like, you know, screw it. I'm doing it. This is my path. And I dove into indie publishing and I just became like the student of all things. And, you know, I found Joanna Penn's podcast. I found you, Sasha. I've been a huge fan since then. I'm on the Patreon folks, so you should go join. <laughs> um, and, you know, I took a Nick Stevenson course and just all this, you know, all the things. So by the end, it's just, I'm just becoming such a fierce advocate for all things indie publishing and all it represents about, you know, independence and empowerment and, you know, owning your future and your words and your work. And it just, I just, it just so resonates with me. So, um, you know, so I ended you, up, go ahead. You, you spent 17 years writing <laughs> one book. Let's just roll back to this one. 17 years writing the same book. Okay. So two things, tell me about that. <laughs> And secondly, um, so you mentioned a little bit about kind of the trigger that pushed you into yes. to going down and maybe like, tell me, tell me more about like, what really, what was that moment? Like, was there a moment where you were like, oh my God, I just have to get this done now. Or like, yeah, talk to me about those two things. Well, it was super interesting because I wrote the book at a time in my life when I was at an, I was at an agency and I've always felt like a little on the outside, like I didn't quite fit in. So I was a little angry. So when I wrote my first draft of the book, my heroine was a little unlikable because I think she was just a little pissed off because in my life, I was a little pissed off too. So that came through on the page. And so I was going through that and working that through. And, you know, I did query it a little bit now and then, but I just don't think anyone in publishing wanted to go anywhere near orgasm. So I don't think that was a... Tells you everything, doesn't me. it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, yeah. So um, when I got laid off, I had initially started writing a nonfiction book about managing people because I had teams for years. And I always loved doing that. I just felt like so many people did it wrong and I had a better way. And I was kind of take got tangled up into that. My daughter says, hey, mom, what about the other book? You know, what about what about the book you put aside? And I was, you know, so I went back into it. I was reading it. I'm like, oh, my God, I love this book. You know, this is you know, this is the book I wish I had had at the time when I was going through those intimacy struggles because, you know, everything I found at the time was either super dry and clinical or kind of kinky and you want to peek through your fingers. So I needed something in between. And, you know, women's fiction is a little tame. There's lots of closed door situations. And I, I personally feel because there's lots of ladies out there not having their fun in the bedroom times and they just don't even want to go there in their writing either. So I feel like it's a little bit of a mission of my own to kind of make women's fiction a little sexier. So yeah, I just started that journey in 2020 and just, you know, kind of unpacked it. I was following this, you know, not to be like a commercial for Nick Stevenson, but I really did follow the program he had in terms of what you do pre-launch and what you do post-launch and how do you build a community and how do you build your email list and all that stuff. So 
And then I just wanted to do it right because I spent so damn long on the book. I just did it big. So I had a PR team and, you know, whatever. And it, it was, it was amazing. It was an amazing experience. And, you know, we talked, well, I think we'll get into the whole packaging issue because my first book was like, there's a lot of learning that went on. Always, (laughs) always. Definitely. I, I mean, I learned so much from my first, well, not just book, first whole series, but Okay, as a fiction author who focuses on taboo topics, how do you like even ready yourself for like the professional and social consequences of like going there in your writing? Can you share some of your personal experiences? Yeah, I mean, it's a little terrifying, to be honest, because you're a lot of times when you're writing about a topic that's interesting to you, it's for a reason, you know, maybe you experienced that in your life, or you had some trauma or, you know, what have you. So you need to be ready to talk about that. Because when you write a book, I mean, it was for years, I'm writing this book and it's about orgasms and people are like, ah. and I'm like, ah. you know, and I just didn't even know how to talk about what I was writing about. So I think that one of the first things you do is really kind of figure out for yourself where you're comfortable talking and how personal you want to get and create some language for yourself so that if someone asks you about what you're writing, you're not only informed, but you're comfortable and prepared about what you want to disclose and what you don't want to disclose. So I think that's the first thing because I I just didn't even know how to talk about what I was writing for so long. And then, then the issue became when I came to publish, am I using my own name? You know, cause this was very autobiographical. My parents, you know, it was like, Hmm, what my boss is going to think and what my coworkers going to think and what are they going to say at the sidelines at soccer? Oh, there's the orgasm lady. You know, like I didn't want to be the orgasm lady. So it, you just need to be prepared for that. And for me, it ended up, I wanted to be the orgasm lady. And it I, it felt like if I was asking women and readers to take this journey into their intimate life and own it, then I felt like I had to own it. It felt wrong to me in my case to use a pen name for this type of book. So um, if I have a series called Bold Journeys, like I can't, I just felt like I couldn't hide behind a pen name. And I know that's not everyone's situation. And for some people, it really may be necessary and preferable. But for me, it was, it wasn't a choice I was comfortable with. So did you I have, that this... sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh, did you have any like consequences in the workplace? Were there any, like, cause, uh, like if you work in marketing, my assumption is that marketing is quite a corporate space. Like were there sort of any comments or like any issues in the workplace that you had to deal with when they realized what you were writing about? Well, it's, that's part of the reason why I felt a little more empowered to write it. But I was, I'm working for myself at my own company. I am my own boss. But I did have concerns with my clients because my clients, you know, they love my writing. I write marketing copy for them all the time. So when I was coming in a book, they're like, oh, I want to read whatever you're writing. And then I had to have, you know, the conversation. And people were just so amazing. They were way more open than I expected them to be. They were so encouraging and enthusiastic. Everyone's buying it for everyone's wives and husbands and boyfriends. And they're digging in to get tips. And even the PR agent I had at the time she was like I've already used some of the tips in the book with my boyfriend and yes they work and so it was kind of <laughs> hilarious you know because it's a little it's detailed because I did want it to be a little self-helpish how to-ish if you were having trouble in the bedroom you know sure the character's going on her journey and she's getting her something something but you can get your something something too you know if you're reading the book so hey we all need something, something every so often <laughs> 
<laughs> or more than more than yeah exactly <laughs> um okay how do you approach like educating read- readers through your work you've talked a little bit about that self-help bit there um but you know i think orgasms can be quite a especially in a country like britain and i'm not i'm tr- not trying to make sweeping generalizations but we can be pretty prudish here um and it's sort of one of those topics that like money actually in britain that is often swept under the carpet we don't talk about that you know you get the in air quotes birds and the bees conversation when you're growing up but we don't often talk about um sex and money so you know people are often resistant to that so yeah how do you go approach uh, go about it without being preachy without you know pushing people away because they're resistant and it's a great question because for me i also didn't want to get shoehorned into one topic of women's intimacy because my i feel you know my books span lots of different topics so in terms of the education piece I like to build empathy and understanding by creating these immersive experiences with the characters. Cause I feel like it's not my role to tell a reader what to think or how to think, but what I can do is I can create an experience, put them in the body of the protagonist who's experiencing, you know, pain or trauma or difficulties. And through their eyes, they can potentially open their eyes further, you know, and, I find that people who are open to those types of messages, you know, kind of emerge from the end of the book change. And I feel like that's way more effective than if I were to take character A and all of a sudden put him on a soapbox. And you can kind of tell when you're reading a book, when the character's in a moment, all of a sudden there's like this little exposition. I'm like, okay, the author's on a soapbox here. You know, for me, that takes me out of the book and it almost makes me a little more resistant to the message because I'm annoyed my story is being interrupted. So I feel like if you kind of have it a little more integrated and let the story breathe and let the story unfold, people get those messages on their own. And I feel like that's a far more effective way to change hearts and minds than to be a little more overt about the messaging. Yeah, absolutely. I I love that. So uh, like, let's talk about your personal motivation then as an author. Like, how did you find your why in writing about such taboo and controversial topics? Because it's quite a choice to make. It is. It is. And I feel, but I feel like I was, I was bred for this, you know, and I think back to my dad, you know, he, you know, was raised in the 40s and 50s, you know, you know, my family's Jewish and, you know, he would go to try to find work and it would be like, you know, Jews need not apply, you know, that like they were not hiring Jews when he would go to try and work and he had to convince them I can do the job, please hire me, please give me a chance. And that's the environment he grew up in at the time. So like when the civil rights movement kind of rolled around, he was all in, you know, he was in Selma and he was marching. So that's the environment I grew up in. And I leaned into that for a time, but now I feel like I'm doing my rebellious work through my work. You know, I'm raising conversations that people don't want to have, whether it's about women's intimacy in my first book, I have a Me Too um, theme in my second book. The book that'll be out soon is takes on race and class. And the one coming up is on body size. So I have like a whole list of ideas of things that I want to talk about. And I feel like that's my why, you know, I, people need to be talking about so many of these issues more. And I love when I see a comment or someone finishes the book and they're like, Oh my God, like, why don't we ever talk about this? Like, why don't we ever talk about women's right to have pleasing 
you know, orgasms? Why don't we ever talk about, you know, male survivors of sexual harassment or the life of a black woman in America? Why don't we, why don't we talk about these things more? You know, so I feel like women's fiction is a really rich tapestry, you know, canvas for me to do that. Did you, when did you come to the realization that, 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 that was like the driving force for you? Like, do you have any advice for listeners who maybe feel like they want to write about something more, um, or different than what they're currently doing, but they haven't quite maybe like pinned it down or they're still searching for that, like thing that really fires them up, like any advice, um, to listeners? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people don't pursue their passions because they're afraid and that's on and that's a common fear I mean hell I was like 17 years with the damn book you know the first time I was hiding in the shadows too but I think I think if you think about what are what's the option like if you don't do the thing if you don't talk about that how would you feel would you be regretful if you didn't go there? Would you feel like it was a missed opportunity? Did you feel like you weren't being true to yourself? So I would kind of flip it over and say, how do you feel not doing it? You know, if that's not sitting with you well, then I think you have your answer. Then just go there and accept the consequences because you can write a book about, you know, dinnerware and puppies and you would still get criticized. So the criticism's coming. So just do what feels right to you and follow your muse. I wholeheartedly encourage people to do that absolutely like I'd rather regret the things I do than the things that I don't so yeah I I completely agree um let's talk about research like what are your strategies for research um and how do you I guess become enough of a subject matter expert in order to be able to portray something that is taboo or controversial in an accurate way that is also like engaging for fiction. Um, because sometimes I suppose that's, that's the danger with those of us who do a lot of research for books is we can end up putting too much into it and it, you know, they're not reading like a fictional story. Yeah. I think for me, it starts, um, with what expertise do I have already to start with? Like, what's my level where I start? So my first book, you know, I was my subject matter expert because all the things that happened in that book, I did. And I loved hearing comments of like, no, we'll do these things. And I'd be like, yeah, here, this girl, I did all those things. So um, that was a little bit easier. But as I moved into the other books and especially my current one, you know, I dive into, you know, the internet searches, I seek out books and I listen to videos. And I think a, a really great, potentially underutilized strategy is just respectfully listening in social spaces and hearing what the conversations are happening. You know, what are people in those communities talking about? What are those unfiltered um, experiences that people have? There's one that I put in my current book that I, you know, I, I was listening and it was just, you know, it was a black woman who had come out of the store and she was just so frustrated that someone was following her around the store like she was going to steal something. You know, that's something, that's that raw emotion you get in the moment. And I feel like those those become more powerful in a story, more authentic because they're real and they happen. So definitely do that. Do a lot of interviews. I seek out experts. Um, you know, sometimes I pay, you know, experts if needed, if I, you know, it's that's what it is. Um, and then I work with sensitivity readers. I'm a huge, huge fan of sensitivity readers. Um, Any they, advice to listeners about interviewing? Like, 
um how meta is this where i'm doing an interview question about interviewing um but no <laughs> like any advice on maybe finding the right people or or pitching people or um like i guess forming questions or anything like any advice to listeners who maybe have some people they want to approach but aren't quite sure like how to initiate that I, my, my first advice would be do the work before you make the overture to somebody because it's not their job to educate you on their lived experience. You know, you need to do the work. You need to understand and have and understand what questions you have. So and then you can frame it in a way. I'm working on a book. I'm looking for someone who you know has this particular experience would you be open to working with me and if so you know would there be any charge you know cuz some people charge and a lot, a lot of people don't but some people do you know and i think that's a good way to approach it and then let them say whether it's the right type of relationship for them or not um but with, with sensitivity readers I think some people think of them in in the wrong way. I think they think of them as, oh, this person is going to come in and wag a finger at me and tell me what I'm not supposed to be doing. And I think that's the wrong way to think about it because sensitivity reading is more about listening and finding opportunities and learning outside your own experience and delving into someone else's. So it's, there are so many things you don't know what you don't know if you're not, you don't have that identity and there are simple things. And then there are foundational things that you just may be unaware of. So it's having that insight makes your book richer. It makes your characters more authentic. It makes your, the communities more open to engaging with your story, not because, you know, you, you're framing them in the wrong way. It's, it's interesting. I had, I, I can give you an example. I was working with a therapist for there's a, a therapy thread in my second book and I gave it to her. And I just kind of had this stereotypical therapist in my head who I threw on the page. It's like a Sigmund Freud, you know, old dude with a beard. And then when she was reading it, she said, well, you know, the people in this line of work are really younger. Um, they're working more peer to peer. And that's insight I wouldn't have had if I didn't have that conversation with the therapist about how these types of counseling sessions work. So I, you know, dropped 40 years on my therapist in the book and it made it like a really interesting conversation when that scene happened. And I, I felt really good about that. I mean, that's just like one really foundational example, but it's working with sensitivity readers is for me, it's, it's about adding richness and getting it right. And yes, of course it is because you don't want to, you don't want people to have uncomfortable experiences reading the book, but it's about so much more than that. Uh, any advice on finding sensitivity readers? Because I think that's the one bit that um, authors who are open to, uh, you know, working with sensitivity readers often uh, don't know how to find them. So any advice uh, on that? I would start with, you know, your the people you know in your life and asking around. If you're in author groups, you can post some organizations like I'm in, the Women Fiction Writers Association, and we have an expert list. So if you have expertise in a certain area, there are a lot of associations that may have, you know, an expert criteria. And then you can look, you know, just do internet searches if you if you feel like the, the personal connections aren't working out for you, because people will look at that. You can potentially listen on social spaces and, you know, send a note to somebody and say, hey, I really, you know, I'm interested in what you're talking about. Would you be open to having a conversation? It could help me you know, with a background research I'm doing for a book. How 
how do you know um, if you need a sensitivity reader? Like, how do you even approach that? Like, are there certain things that you need to ask them to do? Are there, do you just hand it and be completely open? Like, how does that, how do you even like work with that? So I usually give them, you know, I give them specific um, questions that I'm looking to answer. Does this make, did I misrepresent how the situation works or how you feel? Did I, are there any situations that made you uncomfortable? Did anything stand out to you as being problematic? Anything good that happened that I should build on more? Um, did I, you know, did I misrepresent anything? Like just some kind of foundational experiences and kind of leave it open for them to bring the the insight to you because I, I find if you're too narrow with it you might miss things that they would otherwise have mentioned to you and um I think that like for me that's been a good approach and there are certain you know people if they're very busy you can narrow them okay I'm looking at these three scenes where this happens I'm talking about you know someone who is you know is is paralyzed is this right you know so in terms of figuring out what you need it for um, it'd be great for you to have just beta readers of all different backgrounds who can kind of flag things for you. So in my current book, I'm writing a black female protagonist. And, you know, while I'm a woman of color, I'm not black. So I've taken special care to get those right, you know, interviews before they read drafts. They read my first drafts. I never opened my first drafts to anybody, but I felt like if I was going down that road, I needed to know early. So um, they read many drafts in the book and were very deeply engaged, but you'll find a lot of sensitivity readers will obviously you'll be consulting for them. I think a way to know when to engage one is just thinking about what you're writing. And if, if you're drafting something and you're trying to make it authentic and you're finding yourself hamstrung by the details, that might be a spot if you're writing an, an engagement with a fireman or a police officer or a doctor and you don't know those things. You don't know what the equipment they use when they extract something. I had a scene with a paramedic and do they use headlamps when it's dark? Like how do they, do, you know, like, you know, you know, the, those memes about, you know, authors and their internet searches, but that can be an entree point to identifying when you might need more assistance than an internet search can provide. Yeah, I love that. Uh, there is only so much, like you don't get that real personal, you get facts and figures, but you don't get that personal, like like you say, lived experience. Well, from Google. Okay. And some of those things are really subtle. So like in my book, there was an, an, an exchange I wrote between two characters and it was racially charged scene. And you know, my sensitivity readers were like, you know, that wouldn't have happened that way. That would have happened if it was a black man there, but not a black woman. This is what I would experience if I was in that situation. So it can be really subtle things that add depth to your story that you might otherwise have missed. Mm -hmm. I love that so much. Uh, have you seen the Barbie movie? Yes. Oh, I'm a, I'm like, I'm team Barbie. I, you should look at my blog on LinkedIn. The, business skills I learned playing Barbie. I am, I, I'm a very big Barbie advocate. <laughs> I love the film. I saw it last night and I was like, oh, this is a masterpiece. Like it was so well written. Like the, yeah, the, the kind of satirical social commentary was like next level. And like the fact that there are so many people raging about it just made me laugh even harder. 
because uh, they've obviously completely missed the point. Anyway, I'm not going to get onto a soapbox about that. But given, uh, no, uh, let's talk about branding and taboo. Like being a taboo author, obviously you have to probably be somewhat careful with branding. So like, how did you create your brand? Like, what did you consider? What did you decide to leave out? What did you decide was like important in including in the branding? Like, how did you come to those conclusions? Well, I think I have a little bit of a leg up because I've worked in marketing and I have for my whole career. But for me, the, you know, they talk about branding. Are you branding the books? Are you branding yourself? You know, there's different approaches. So for me, even the topic. Be, the topic exactly so for me i'm trying to create the author brand around me as a writer and also around my brand of storytelling so you'll get consistent promise of like you'll get social stuff you'll get fast prose you'll get some romance you'll you know just those element building blocks but i'm looking for people who are interested in my brand of storytelling. And when I hop around, like, oh, what Paulette's doing this time? You know, they know the type of story they're going to get. They may not know the focus, but they're 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 in, you know, because they want to be entertained or they know they'll breeze through my book in like a day and a half. So that is that. So for me, the visuals of the brand are important. So when I started and I was leaning into the romance more than I should have, and I was using pink as my primary color, and I was using some different typefaces, and then I learned that women's fiction readers don't like pink. You know, they see a pink cover and they run the other way. So I pivoted. I pivoted to navy and whites and golds and greens that were more consistent with the genre expectations. So for me, having crisp and clean visuals and graphics and having it, it non-verbally conveys that my writing will be tight, that it'll be bold, that there's quality there. And then for me, it's, being really consistent from my website to my, you know, my presentations to the signage I have when I'm tabling, you know, social graphics, newsletters, everything is the same. So I feel like if you are consistent and have a look and feel that you embrace as a brand, then it, it just, even without reading a word, it communicates that you kind of got your crap together and that you're going to deliver something that's as expected. You know, I, I just feel like even without reading a word, you can tell that. So if you're on your social feed and you've got like all different colors and typefaces and imagery and you do photography and then you don't, and you know, what's your book like? You know, it just, it kind of communicates something without even saying having anyone read a page of your book. So I think that it's important for others to be super conscious of the image that they're giving off without people even reading their book because that's piece of it. You know, I mean, your brand, Sasha, is super specific, right? With your purple and your white and your gold and your demonic imagery, you know, that's <laughs> your brand. Yeah. Even your name, you know, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know. Oh, God, you know, I don't think I ever even realized that, yeah, I'm using the color black and that definitely does represent, oh, shit. How did I not, do you know that? Oh, come was, on now, you never noticed that? <laughs> nope, that was subconscious. The reason I did it is because uh, black is my favorite color. So obviously that makes sense in terms of, yes, okay, that is part of the brand, but it's part of the brand because it's my favorite color and therefore black and purple, you know, ended up making up the brand. Um, I think though, that it's interesting that the elements that I have taken into the Ruby Rose stuff um, and, it's really interesting for me when I do have crossover readers 
to know like where they feel the voice is similar and where the voice isn't because the the funny thing is I've been reflecting on that actually the Ruby Row books are probably closer to the nonfiction than the young adult stuff. And so if I were to take anything out, actually I should have published the Ruby Row stuff. Well, not should have, but if I were going to condense, I would put the Ruby Row stuff under Sasha Black and take the young adult stuff out and have that under a different name. And and the and the reason for that, I suppose, is because Ruby Row is sweary and sexy and dick jokes or would not tit jokes I should say you know or and that kind of stuff rather than and uh, the young adult which was cleaner um so yeah it's it's been interesting to kind of look at and, and actually funny enough there's still a bit of purple in the fiction uh and, so I just can't get away well, that's from great it. because that's consistent for you I think anyone who finds out who who's behind Ruby yeah. Rowe would be like, of course it's probably, yeah. you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you know, I'm just glad that it's not a secret anymore. <laughs> yeah. I know um, it was, it was like when you came out, it was like, Oh, you yeah. know, came out, you know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, it yeah. was like, it was like, Oh, she said, was, you know, she said the name of the one. So that was yeah. fun too. Yeah. But that was an intentional choice and it was probably was the right one, you know? Yeah, exactly. yeah. I was so subconscious as well. So it goes to show that listening to your gut helps. Um, okay, when we when we come to writing and publishing, a lot of us want to sell, sell, sell. We and we often get told that the way to do that is by going center market. But whenever you write about anything that's taboo, it immediately puts you into a niche, and niches are typically not center market; they're usually off center. Um, so you know, what What can we expect when we niche down uh, in terms of like sales? Can you share like maybe some of your experience about setting and managing expectations and like maybe about trying to chase those sales? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, everyone has to find their audience and it definitely isn't, you know, going to be as big a market as something, you know, like a cozy something, you know, like you're not going to, find as many people, but you'll find your people. It might just take longer. And it's, it just requires way more patience than I have, but I've been forced to, <laughs> to explore those. So I think that if you're, if you're taking an unpopular opinion, then that could, you know, create some friction for you in terms of like reviews and ratings and things like that. But I'm honestly surprised that more people aren't offended by my books. I think that if you package it right, people will find you and then it becomes the balance of your marketing and how you're targeting those people and reaching them in the right way at the right time. And, you know, is your pricing the same and all the, you know, some of the same things that everybody has, um, regardless of whether you're touching on something taboo, but it definitely will take you, it, you know, it may take you longer to find your peeps, you know? So if your author friends will often KU and I'm wide, which is another another thing but you know i'm really happy i'm wide i'm doing phenomenally well with libraries and i think that there shouldn't be a barrier if your work is good <laughs> yeah i think a lot of um writing in niche is about understanding where you can locate your readers so for example like you know a lot of the big uh 
genres like romance for example you know you use facebook ads because that is where the romance readers are but when you're talking about like lesbian fantasy you're not necessarily going to be able to do that on facebook because there's so many fucking homophobes on there so the minute you do advertising you get hit with a load of bullshit homophobia um so it's about like do you i suppose for me it's about have you done the research to find out where people are talking about the books and wherever they're talking about that kind of genre or that niche that is where you should be um so yeah i love that Uh, um i think you and i think that that you can if you are a little more open about you know presenting and talking and doing talks you know you can speak directly to readers and you can learn a lot speaking directly to readers or tabling at events and you know learn where they are what they like and then adjust accordingly so i think it's a kind of a multi-pronged strategy you know if you're just hoping to sit home and get ebook sales you know that may not be your most effective route yeah yeah i don't think that's anybody's effective route these days <laughs> <laughs> yes um okay how do you navigate genre expectations um particularly when like writing about controversial themes are there any particular challenges and how have you like overcome them i think for me this is where writing women's fiction is really an advantage because you know if for people who don't know women's fiction is defined as a story that is focused on the transformation of the main character um, so they begin the book one way and by the end of the book, they're like a newer, better version of themselves. So I feel like that gives a lot of flexibility from within genre expectations, because that can be historical, that can be paranormal, that can be contemporary, it can have, you know, magical elements, whatever. You know, it, there's a lot of flexibility there, I think, within the women's fiction genre to explore those. And I think women's fiction readers are definitely, they signed up for some of the heavy stuff. You know, so I think that that fits within that, too. So I think if you're writing about a taboo topic, I think it's important for you to understand, you know, how to position it within the genre you're choosing. You know, what are your age of your readers and what are they expecting? And is this in line with expectations? And that, you know, also goes to the packaging because you want your your reader promise to be clear so that you'll get readers that will enjoy your work and recommend it to other people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You mentioned earlier a little bit uh, of a lesson that you learned about pink and like kind of the packaging. (laughs) I just wondered if you could talk a little bit more about, you know, that packaging side, maybe with your marketing expertise and background, like how did you approach the fact that you have got these like taboo topics in there? And like, how did you approach getting the packaging right well, I approached getting the packaging right by first getting the packaging wrong. So <laughs> I <laughs> So my editor at the time, it was kind of, you know, I couldn't decide if it was women's fiction or romance. And she's like, lead to the romance, lead to the romance. So I made like a rom-com cover. Like I'm a marketer. I researched all the trends. I had custom graphics made and I got this cover, which you know, it has like this little cute girl, it's a dude with a motorcycle, it's got the scripty font, it just looks like it's all fun. And then it like blew up a neck alley. And then everyone ran to ne- Goodreads and was like one star. I was like, oh my God, this is horrible. Ah! You know, they were just having some nasty girl conversations. And I was devastated because that my book hadn't even come out yet. And I already felt like, oh my God, I made the worst thing ever. So I pivoted really quickly. And I think that's great as an indie 
Now you can do that. So I wanted everyone to know that if you're reading this book, that there's going to be lady parts in it. So I have cover number two, which ended up being like a cross section of a grapefruit. And, you know, anyone reading this would kind of know, okay, lady parts are on board. And, but then like Amazon was freaking out, like they wouldn't run my ads or Facebook was freaking out. They wouldn't run my ads. And it became like a whole thing. And then I was like censored, you know, it just became drama. But then if I had to be honest with myself, the grapefruit, it almost looked a little nonfiction-y. Like, I don't know what the reader promises from that grapefruit cover. Like, I don't know what genre it is maybe as much. So then I ended up pivoting a third time. And this is, mind you, the third cover within the first six months of the book. Because for me, a cover is packaging. A cover is like a box of cereal. So if you sign up for Weedabix, yeah, I'm doing a little British cereal. I'm throwing out my British cereal. If you're signed up for Weedabix and you open it up and there's Tutti Fruity candy cereal inside, you're going to be pissed off. So it's the same thing with your book cover. So getting that right is essential. It's the promise of the book. So I feel like I had to go through those ridiculously bumpy, stupid road to get to the place where I am now, where I have like a theme with my books and the color and they're on genre and everyone loves them. And I sometimes have the problem of people running out and buying the book because they like the cover and they don't even read the book description. And then they're a little horrified. So (laughs) so, so I'm still fighting my little reviews, but that's on you. If you don't read the book description, sorry, folks. Um, I don't know if we've, I don't know if you are happy, but I'd love to include all three covers in the show notes. Like if you're happy with that, like for listeners who can't see. You can do that. Sure. Sure. sure, Yeah. We'll talk about crazy bands, right? Yeah. (laughs) No, I love it. Um, Okay. Patience is often key in this industry, not just with writing controversial topics, although I can imagine it's perhaps even more important. How do you manage expectations and patience? Like when you are kind of writing in this controversial area, like I am the least fucking patient person I know. Um, So, you know, I'm not very good at this and I can't give any advice about this, but how do you manage it? Well, I'm the least impatient person I know. I was raised by a guy who would run into the kitchen at restaurants. It's like they didn't come back fast enough. Like I... That's who raised me, you know, the guy who's off getting carted off to jail in a strike, you know, like this is the dude, you know, so I have no patience. Plus, you know, I think I'm genetically at a disadvantage because like what I ran out and do the Clifton Strength stuff. And, you know, folks, you knew it was coming. You knew it was coming. I did. I was about to. Achiever, activator, maximizer, Ah. strategic communication competition. Like I ain't patient. Yeah. Plus I'm from Manhattan. So like we're none of us are patient. So like I'm at, I feel what like was number I one? Get some... Sorry, achiever, 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 activator. achiever, activator, maximize strategic communication, competition, significance, futuristic intellection input. Oh, I love it. Yeah. You see that competition activator, that is a bitch. <laughs> Ask <laughs> me how I know. <laughs> Especially when you throw in achiever. Yeah. I feel your pain. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. Thank yeah, you, dear. So yeah, so I'm super not patient at all. Like I'm <laughs> like awful. You know, I'm like one of those people, these, you know, check in your dashboards every five seconds. And that was it was, but I had a good learning experience recently because my first audiobook came out this year and I was just like excited about it. And I held it back all my marketing until the audiobook came out. And then I was like, ah. And then I thought I didn't sell anything. 
And then I log into my dashboard and I'm not used to, I'm used to the Amazon reporting cycle of it's like super fast. And the wide stuff isn't the same way. Like the reporting is delayed. So especially because I seem to be doing so well with libraries, like the reporting is like a couple months late. So I get these, it's doing really happy. So that, that made me feel like, okay, you're going to have to wait for the data. So you have to like, you know, chill out be patient, just focus on the next thing. So for me, I guess stay patient by keeping super busy and working on tons of things at the same time. So I'm never kind of fretting over one thing at the same time, if that makes, sense, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. ACX drives me insane because it's like four days out or something. It's so slow. But um, yeah, it's such well, a Well, for me, like, all my stuff is coming from Hoopla. Like, <laughs> I, like Hoopla loves me and that's like two months later like it just pops in out of the blue and i'm like what the hell you know and and it's and then it's exciting because that's i'm selling around the world like i've sold in 23 countries my books and so the you know uk and canada new zealand and all kinds of places and just exciting because i'm trying to cultivate an audience that's global so that takes more patience so it's it's hard the struggle is real (laughs) but i'm trying Absolutely. Well, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. So I feel like my whole life is rebellious, um, but I'm going to narrow in and do a special UK edition (laughs) of Rebellion. So when I was 17, I lived with a family in Ilford, Essex, and we, I was, you know, young art student, marketing student, and there was this ad campaign at the time from Smirnoff Vodka. And it was like, walking the dog with a dash of pure Smirnoff and doing this with a dash of pure Smirnoff. And it was just like this really cool marketing campaign. So we ended up, I ended up just like skulking around the underground and stealing ads out of the subway cars and just like taking them home. And I have so many of these signs. I still have them in the basement somewhere. I don't even know how I got them on the station because they were like, you know, not quite a meter long, but they were big. Like some of these signs I was taking and, you know, we would go around the different lines and and the only one I wasn't able to steal one from was the yellow line because their signs were locked up. So my only regret was not being able to steal more, um, which I guess is rebellious too, but yeah. Definitely rebellious. So, yeah, I was like so into Britain. Like I was watching the young ones and Eastenders and like the whole like I was like all in, you know. So oh God, there you I go. I love it. I love it. That is a proper <laughs> rebellion. That's made me cackle. Okay. Tell everyone where they can find out more about you, your books, and anything else that you'd like to add. So you can find me at paulettestout.com. You can find all my books there and link to um media coverage and you know, write reviews, hopefully, folks. If you've read my book, go read the leave a review. And um, you can find me on social media at Paulette Stout Author on most places. And for the time, I'm on Twitter at Stout Content. So uh, not well, so long. Don't know how long that'll be there, but <laughs> that's where I am. I'm mostly on TikTok and Instagram these days at Paulette Stout Author. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And of course, a gigantic thank you to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. 
You were listening to Paulette Stout, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. This week, I'm talking to Icy Sedgwick all about how to write folklore-inspired fiction. So join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.